Hi, this is Anne Hawley, your Editor Roundtable podcast producer. When we made this episode, we completely forgot to include a language warning. So here it is. There's some fairly adult language throughout this episode. Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years' experience. My name is Valerie Francis, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Jari Bolander, Anne Hawley, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an excellent example of a significant story principle. Then we team up to test the idea, look at it from all angles, and give authors a deep insight into story structure. Okay, this week, Kim pitched The Fundamentals of Caring as a great example of a global internal genre story. This 2016 heartfelt comedy drama was written and directed by Rob Burnett, based on the novel The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving by Jonathan Evison. It premiered at Sundance before airing as a Netflix original film. After Kim makes her case, Leslie, Anne, and Jari will evaluate it from other perspectives so that in the end, we get a complete 360-degree view of the story principle of global internal genre stories. Kim will start us off with the genre and a quick one-sentence summary of each of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff. Kim. Just a heads up on the language, there's some adult words used in the film, and we'll have clips of those, and we'll make references to them ourselves that will feature those words. So if language is an issue, we just want to give you a heads up. So the genre here is worldview education. Here's the beginning hook. When Ben, a writer who stopped writing and instead becomes a full-time caregiver for Trevor, a young man wheelchair-bound by Duchenne muscular dystrophy, is confronted by the possibility of taking Trevor on a week-long road trip to see the world's deepest pit, he must convince Trevor's mom that it's possible, or else Trevor will never take this chance to live beyond his security. He convinces her and an apprehensive Trevor, and they hit the road. In the middle build... When Ben's encouragement of Trevor to embrace new things ends in disaster after going to see his estranged father who abandoned him when he was three, they must decide whether to complete their journey to the pit or just go back home. Eventually, they decide to continue, but more to please their hitchhiking companions than any sort of meaningful experience for themselves. In the ending payoff, they reach the pit and their pregnant companion goes into labor Ben has to face his fear of loss and pain of losing his own son and help her deliver. The delivery is a success, and Trevor is proud of him. They say goodbye to their travel companions, and Ben rigs away for Trevor to finally pee standing up right into the world's deepest pit. They return to their lives, writing for Ben and shamelessly tricking caregivers for Trevor, and the two remain close friends. I loved that last scene, I have to say. It doesn't sound like something that would be a crowd pleaser, but in this film, in this film, it really is. Okay, yes. Kim, so let's hear your analysis of the fundamentals of caring as a global internal story. As I investigate my three film picks this season, I'm seeking to understand the what, the how, and the why of global internal stories. Internal genres are a tricky topic for a lot of us, so studying them at this deep level by getting as specific as possible will help us better understand them and better create them. Even if you have no interest in telling global internal stories, the majority of your global external stories are going to pair with a supporting internal genre, so this deep study will undoubtedly pay its own way for you as well. So let's dive headfirst down the rabbit hole, shall we? First up in our exploration of the fundamentals of caring is to figure out what the heck it is. We have this fabulous tool for that we've dubbed Friedman's Framework. Norman Friedman is the father of the internal genres, and he has some questions that he recommends we go through. The first one is, who is the protagonist? This is the person who undergoes the most change, the one whose welfare is our chief focus and interest and whom all else in the plot revolves. So I'm arguing for dual protagonists here, kind of like a love story with Ben and Trevor. Although since Ben is a protagonist and our POV character, his genre feels like the global story if they happen to be different. In this case, I believe they're both worldview education. 
This is an interesting contrast to last week's Shawshank Redemption story where Red was our point of view character, but Andy is the clear protagonist. So it's Andy's genre that is the global story. So the next thing we do is we take a look at what the protagonist's situation is at the beginning of the story. We want to look at their character, which is their willpower and their motives. You know, are they selfish? Are they unselfish? Are they sympathetic or not? That kind of thing. We want to look at their thought. This is the level of sophistication, their beliefs. And we want to look at their fortune. That is their social standing, their external circumstances. And, you know, how do we feel about them? Do we hope it will get better? Do we fear it will get worse? So you want to take a look at that and see what in the story is coming through. Not only what is it, but how can you tell? So you're going to do that for each character. And I have all of these notes in the show notes for Ben and Trevor. And then you're going to take a look at the protagonist situation at the end of the story. And you're going to go through and do the same sort of evaluation, their character, their thought and fortune, and see how is it specifically at the end. And then you're going to compare them and take a look at, okay, what of these has changed? And then the other thing you want to do is take a look at how the audience experiences this change. How do we feel about it? In this case, I've personally, we I think we feel heartwarming, satisfaction, and delight. But other genres, you, you might feel, you know, like in a punitive plot where the good guy goes bad and gets punished, you just, you're going to feel vindication and it's going to feel very satisfying. So hopefully we're going with satisfying in the end, but it's going to be a different kind of satisfaction based on the genre. Then we want to express this change as a cause and effect statement. So here's mine for the fundamentals of caring. When Ben, a father grieving the loss of his young son, becomes the full-time caregiver for Trevor, a wheelchair-bound young man with a wicked sense of humor, the two help each other find a higher quality of life that's possible amidst difficult circumstances. So you take your cause and effect, and then you take a look at the kind of generic cause and effect statements to find which one is the right fit. And in this case, I think it's very strong with worldview education. One specific aspect of the education plot is the protagonist's decision and actions in the climax and resolution of the film. They're not going to be all that different from their previous decisions and actions, but the underlying motivation is what has changed. In terms of literal and essential action, the protagonist's global literal action remains consistent, but the global essential action is transformed. And this is kind of the opposite of what we would see at a scene level. And keeping the same literal actions but changing your internal motivation, that's what an education story is all about. The majority of other internal genres require a new decision plus action to reach that final life value. But in education, the climactic moment is the transformation of thought. We can specifically compare and contrast this with other worldview genres. Maturations, transformation of thought more often aligns with the all is lost, epiphany, apotheosis section. And then it shifts us into the ending payoff. Maturation has this two-part transformation process. First, you realize your black and white beliefs were false, which feels traumatic and like cognitive dissonance. Then the realization of the deeper gray truth, the kickoff to the ending payoff. The climax of the maturation is the protagonist's new decision plus the action that demonstrates their transformation in thought. The maturation protagonist gets a new essential action and a new literal action. In this way, revelation is similar to maturation and disillusionment is similar to an education story. So before I jump into the how of worldview education, my fellow roundtablers are going to walk us through what they see and how this is working. And Leslie's going to start us off with the conventions. Okay, so this season I am studying conventions, and while I'm focusing on action plots, internal genres have a lot of really interesting conventions. So as I've mentioned before, conventions are the setup for reader expectations, and you might think of them as the minimum conditions to create the life value shift in the genre. So the ones I'm looking at are specific to worldview education because maturation, disillusionment, and revelation genre stories require slightly different conventions. Okay, so first we have characters. In any story, the type of protagonist is of vital importance, but when the global genre is the internal one, the character should possess very specific qualities, some of those you've heard Kim talk about. So in a worldview education story, the protagonist is a sympathetic character who possesses false conceptions, beliefs, or attitudes about themselves or their life circumstances because of One, a disillusioning experience that causes them to become cynical or fatalistic, which is the more sophisticated version, 
or two, they haven't been exposed to alternative possibilities, which is the more naive version. We have both types in this story. Ben is the sophisticated type. The death of his son robs him of meaning because he believes that being a parent is the only reason we're here. That's his false belief. More specifically, Ben is a wounded, middle-aged man who is a victim of misfortune despite having done his best. Since he is no longer a parent, he doesn't find meaning in his life. He presumably can't write anymore and won't go through with the divorce of his wife because he doesn't want to let go of the only connection to his old life that held meaning for him. So what makes him sympathetic in part is his desire to help, even though underneath the altruistic motive, he's looking to fill a hole within himself. Now, Trevor exhibits both sophisticated and naive versions of this. Sophisticated because his father left the family upon learning of Trevor's diagnosis, but naive because no one has shown him that his illness doesn't have to limit his life so extensively. So if we get more specific, Trevor is a young man with a severe illness that gives him a life expectancy of seven to 10 more years. He clings to a rigid routine to feel safe and pushes away his caregivers with extreme jokes, probably because his father abandoned him. Now, all of this means he spends his life as an observer, not as a participant. The next character we see in this type of story is the mentor. This is someone who can and does see circumstances differently because they haven't allowed disillusioning events or lack of experience to cloud their conceptions, beliefs, or attitudes. They offer advice in key moments to guide the protagonist toward a more comprehensive view of life. Now, here we have Dot who is a young woman whose mother has died and whose father is a mess. But she doesn't let the past determine her future. She's going to Denver to restart her life. There are two key moments when she enlightens Ben and Trevor to higher understanding. And the first is when the warning light comes on in the van and Trevor begins to panic. The second is when the visit to Trevor's father is a disaster and they must decide whether to go on and see the deep pit or go home. Now, often in worldview education stories, we see two protagonists possessing similar or maybe mirror image beliefs, and each occasionally takes on the role of mentor within the story, speaking truth to their cohort. And we see examples of this within this story. The next type of character is the shapeshifter. Now, shapeshifters are characters who say one thing and do another, and their incongruent behavior wakes the protagonist up, making them realize that something's not quite right with their inadequate conceptions, beliefs, or attitudes. Now, we get this in some interesting ways here. The instructor at the caregiving training says, give care, but don't care too much. That just doesn't make sense. It's not really a useful instruction. Trevor's father thought it was a bad idea to write to his son, to have some kind of relationship with him, even if he couldn't have a full parenting relationship with him. But he thought it was okay to offer him the cash in his wallet, which is a really hollow effort to assuage his own guilt. Trevor's mom demands an extraordinary level of care for her son, which requires him to take great care, meaning Ben, to take great care of Trevor. But she doesn't want Ben to get too close to him. And in this way, her shape-shifting is similar to that of the instructor. The next type of convention includes the setting and circumstances. And this is the environment that's required to create the life value shift. For worldview revelation, and indeed most of the internal genres, we need a big social problem as subtext. This provides opportunities for challenges to the protagonist's beliefs. Now, I've identified this as an uncertain world where bad things happen for no discernible reason. 
this is the case in nearly any story. And it sounds kind of vague, but this is where I'm going with it. Ben and Trevor experience unlikely misfortune that really highlights the chaotic nature of the universe. And there are other events in the story that invite the thought, what are the odds? For example, running into Dot twice and Peaches going into labor at the bottom of the pit with no warning. The final type of convention that we see is the means of turning the plot. The first is a threat or trial that challenges the conceptions, attitudes, or beliefs of the protagonist. Ben is assigned to care for a young man rather than an older person, as he anticipated. And for Trevor, Ben alters his macro and micro routine in ways that challenge his beliefs. The next is the clear point of no return which is the moment when the character can't go back to their old way of seeing things. This is after the disaster of meeting Trevor's dad, when Dot demands that they proceed to the pit. They have to see it through, even though it holds no meaning for them anymore. Finally, there is a win-but-lose, lose-but-win ending that fulfills the promise of the original threat or challenge. Here, Ben won't find meaning as trying to be a substitute father for Trevor, but he can find meaning in their friendship, that he can have a meaningful life without being a parent. And for Trevor, he can't change his illness or the prognosis, but he can let go of his rigid routines. He can form connected relationships with people other than his mother, and he can live a meaningful life. Thank you so much, Leslie and Kim. Okay, now Anne is going to talk to us about nonlinear storytelling, which is her topic for this season. And of course, that links right into narrative drive, which is something that I would have been talking about. If only you had a voice. If only I had a voice. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Anne, take it away. (laughs) I will do that. I do want to look at something that I know Valerie is also thinking about, which is narrative drive. So the narrative drive element of this story coincides with my main interest, which is nonlinear storytelling. And it coincides at the point of the flashbacks. In The Fundamentals of Caring, what we have is a mostly very straightforward, linear story told from beginning to end. It's pretty simple in structure. And of course, naturally, I glommed onto the one nonlinear aspect of the story, which was the flashbacks. There are just a few instances of flashback, but the movie opens on one of them, which kind of clues us into their importance. A little boy is lying on his back, laughing and laughing like maybe somebody's tickling him or something. That image and a few short, slow motion, almost dreamlike seconds from a single brief memory in Ben's mind constitute the sum of the flashback. So this is not heavily flashback type of movie. Taken all together, The flashbacks simply tell us that Ben and his son were unloading groceries one day. Ben put the car in neutral, failed to engage the handbrake adequately, and carried his groceries toward the house, leaving his little boy gathering a few spilled apples and oranges behind the car. The car began to roll down the hill and killed his son. It's very subtle. You got to be watching closely to get it. So four questions come to mind about these flashbacks, and they aren't a bad starting point for anyone questioning the use of flashbacks in their own story. Here's what I think they should be, or it's a starting point for thinking about it. One, what story purpose is served by revealing Ben's backstory in flashback form? Two, how would the story differ if instead of flashbacks, we got the whole backstory as a single scene right at the beginning? Three, how would the story differ if instead of flashbacks, we got the same information all at once in dialogue? And four, how would the story differ if the backstory were removed altogether in any form? So let's go through those. What story purpose is served by revealing Ben's backstory in flashbacks? In a word, here you go, Valerie, it adds the narrative drive of mystery. We don't know who the little boy is in the opening scene or what he signifies, but someone, as it turns out, the protagonist, does know. That's mystery. They know more than we do. In the story's linear real time, without the flashbacks, we see Ben meeting his estranged wife, refusing to sign divorce papers, and apparently running from process servers to avoid facing this, the reality of his broken marriage. 
He had a different life before. We begin to get that very early. He's starting over relatively late in life. He's not a kid. Could that little laughing boy in the opening scene have something to do with it? Well, yeah, it's a story, so it probably does. Naturally, we start to wonder. And the remaining flashbacks, I think there are only four of them, are distributed at just the right points to keep that question in mind and keep us watching for the answer. Now, we get part of the answer about 20 minutes in when Elsa, Trevor's mom, tells Ben that she has investigated him and knows about the death of his son. Uh, The word death isn't actually used, but it's pretty clear. The mystery of why Ben is living the way he's living at that point is partly resolved because we know now that he had a son who died and he's grieving. But there's still the question of how the boy died. And that mystery isn't solved until the global climax of the story. So that mystery keeps us moving through the story. How would the story differ? This is our second question. How would the story differ if we simply got the whole flashback scene right up front? If you plugged the whole flashback scene in as a scene at the beginning of the movie, it would act like a prologue. Okay, the next thing you'd need would be some marker of the passage of time. And since in this story, it's only three years, it's not like you can show, you know, somebody's now old and gray or something. People don't, adults don't change that much in three years. So how would you show that? A card that reads like three years later? It's not that that's never been done, but it's pretty cheesy when you do it. If your prologue is nothing more than an explanatory appendage set in a different time and place than the main story, the best thing you could probably do would be to chop it off and distribute its key points in the actual storyline. And flashbacks are one way to do that. And exposition in dialogue or narrative is the other. So third question, how would the story differ if we simply got that whole download in some kind of exposition in dialogue in this case? I can't think of a single way to get this in without it being awkward, unnatural, and out of character for any of the characters that we have in this story. What Ben is remembering in the flashbacks is so traumatic that he can't even speak of it. There is no natural way to insert dialogue about something like that. You know that time you let your car roll downhill and run over your child? I mean, it's hardly something anybody, even Dot, who is very blunt, would say or probe into the details of. Now, another option might be some kind of confessional breakdown in a therapist's office, for instance. But this movie isn't about Ben's therapy, and it would have involved creating a scene and a therapist, and and he's not the type of character who goes into therapy. It's not part of the story, and it's really cliche besides. Finally, the gradual reveal of the whole event adds pathos. Ben is not just a man who's changing to a traditionally underpaid job for some unspoken reason. He's not just a man in denial of his wife's desire for a divorce. He's not just a man whose only child has died. But wait, the final blow is the accident that killed his child was more or less his fault. If we know all that up front, there's very little movement in our view of Ben. As Kim has pointed out, Ben's character doesn't change. Instead, his thought changes, right? As the full picture of his tragedy emerges, we change our view of him and we grow in understanding. So that's a kind of change we experience in ourselves as a result of watching the character. So the final question is kind of a stupid question is finally, how would the story differ if Ben didn't have this backstory at all? And I pose this kind of silly question because if you take all the external action of the story and even some of the internal story interactions between Ben and Trevor, it would be unchanged without that backstory. If Ben, let's say Ben was just a hangdog, recently divorced guy, no terrible tragedy, just kind of, I mean, a sad event, but not a terrible tragedy. You'd get a goofy comedy about a new caregiver and his wise ass, but terminally ill charge going on a road trip and picking up hitchhikers. It all would all still be there. They could still see the big bovine and the deep pit and Peaches could still have her baby and Dot could still go off with her dad. Trevor could even still triumph by finally peeing, standing up. But of course, The tragic backstory is the needle that carries the thematic thread right straight through the whole film. This is a story about family, loss, and human interdependence. And the dual themes of parenthood and powerlessness are what tie all these characters together. It's the very thing that makes this the realistic internal genre story that it is, and not just some goofy sort of frat boy style road trip. I conclude, therefore that the backstory told just as it was in five very short flashbacks was by far 
the best choice the filmmaker could have made. It helped propel the story forward by adding mystery to what is otherwise just light suspense. It made us change in our view of Ben, and it tied the story together and made it what it is, a worldview education story. Oh, here, here. Well done, Anne. Well done, Thank you. you. Take oh, a bow. <laughs> <laughs> take your bow. Okay, Jari, let's hear the set and setting driving dialogue. Yeah, so that, that's what I'm going to be looking at uh, this season. I do like the fact, Anne, that you talked a little bit about the backstory because even though it is revealed mostly in flashback, it is also revealed very slightly in dialogue. And you mentioned one of the dialogues between Elsa and Ben when Elsa says, hey, I know what happened to your son. It's not really said in that way, but it sort of builds the tension along. It does this in a great way because you don't want to, again, reveal it all at the same time or you won't build mystery and tension. So it does, you know, this movie has some wonderful characters that make the story work because their dialogue is true to the subtext that each of them bring to each scene. Subtext is their backstory. It's the backstory that comes in before and after the scene, as well as their history of how they've actually got to where they are. It drives both their physical and verbal actions in a way that's true to the character. Now, the setting plays a critical role in this movie because it starts in Seattle, and then the characters go on a road trip, and then they find these characters along the way. So you're going to see a lot of scenes in cars and motels and diners. You also see scenes in the home. And then what's interesting is this makes the dialogue need to be short at times, panic-filled, silly to try to keep up with the crushing boredom of the road. And then it turns on these emotional exchanges where their guard is lowered and their true raw feelings come out. Um, and this all comes across because these, these characters have authentic backstory revealed in their dialogue. You sort of look at each of the characters' backstory, which is how, as a writer, you need to define who your characters are so that their dialogue and their actions will be true to character. It, a character is not going to do something in a certain way. If it doesn't make sense, then your reader will be like, well, they would never do that. And that's why both what they say and what they do has to be consistent. The best kind of scene where the two main characters, you know, Ben and Trevor and then Elsa come together is in one of the first actually major scenes where, where people are talking. And this is the scene where they're interviewing Ben. And it's actually a wonderful characterization of how you would want to write these characters. But right away after this brief scene, you understand not only where Elsa's coming from, you know, a little bit about Ben, not too much. And you clearly know Trevor and what Trevor is going to do. So tell me, why did you choose to be a caregiver? I like helping people. Can you tell me about some of your previous clients? Trevor would be my first client. It's just that I specified that we... Hello, I'm sorry. You know, I'm so sorry. I, did I do something wrong? I put on aftershave this morning. That's something I don't normally do. Is he sensitive to smells? This is Ben. Do you have any actual questions for him? Sorry, my child has a unique sense of humor. Do you have kids? No. I, I know I don't have any experience. I've been out of work for a while and I could really use this job. Yeah, but if we're going to throw down nine bucks an hour for somebody to wipe my ass, we need somebody who knows how to wipe an ass. Tell me, Ben, given the opportunity, how exactly would you wipe my ass? I'd wipe it in such a way that when I was done, there would be no shit left on your ass. He's the one. And that's it. Now we know the three characters that are going to be interacting in the first part of the you know beginning hook before they obviously go off on the road. Ben is more and more revealed as the scene goes on. He's a little meek. He starts out quiet and somber. His answers are short. And as we learn... Of course, Trevor is going to moan and be a prankster. What else is he going to do? He sits at home all day. I mean, they even say a little bit about how he doesn't like change. And this is all going to drive the story forward. And then as the movie goes on, especially in the beginning hook, you see montages of them becoming more and more bonded. And you see how Ben is handling Trevor, even though Trevor's kind of a handful. And there's one really touching scene where... 
we sort of get what their quest will be. Well, at least one of their quests. First quest is, okay, we're going to get Trevor to peace standing up. And the second quest is we're going to see all these kooky, crazy attractions around the country ending in the big pit. So uh, the scene where Ben asks Trevor, If you woke up and you were totally fine, what's the thing you'd want to do most? If I could do anything at all. I'd really like to take a pee standing up. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. (laughs) These exchanges go on and on, and each character's dialogue is what you'd expect each character to say. You continue to get all this with Elsa and Ben in the kitchen, where Elsa kind of reveals a little bit through dialogue about how she knows about Ben's son. But then more importantly, Ben's like, you mean Trevor knows about this? And he's pretty upset and pretty angry. You knew about my kid and you said all that father bullshit to me? Huh? You think because you're in a wheelchair that gives you the right to say and do whatever you want? You ever consider that maybe I'm just a prick with or without the wheelchair? Fuck you. And fuck your wheelchair. And fuck your waffles and your stupid fucking map with all the places that you're never ever gonna fucking see. Fuck those letters that you'll never reply to because you're such a self-absorbed piece of shit. Is that the best you can do? That's it? I thought you were a writer. Fuck this, fuck that. That's really lame. I think you need a second draft. What's important here is that the dialogue is true to character. We are now seeing an escalation of the the facts coming through. You see there's something in Ben's past. Okay, maybe that's connected to the flashback, as as Anne mentioned. But now they're going to go on this great trip. They're going to live the dream on the road. And then they meet Dot, the cute young woman that Trevor is just enamored with. And their first interaction is... They're walking into a or rolling into a gas station kind of convenience store and Dot's just sitting there smoking a cigarette and she just says, Cool fucking sneakers. And Trevor, with an awkward pause, just says, Mole. And that's it. And they walk away. Right away, you see Dot's this no-nonsense young woman. She's sassy. She's like not going to put up with anything. She's going to be very direct. And Trevor is just panicked by this young woman. And then you start to see this little budding love story as they go on. But the one thing that Kim mentioned before is the scene where Trevor and the gang go to see Trevor's dad. It's when you start to see Trevor break down and you also start to realize that, hey, Ben's got some work to do as well. That scene is going to push them off on the quest or at least finish the quest. So the exchange that I like is at the end before they cut to we're going to finish the quest. Uh, you, listen, you're not my father, okay? You're not my father. I know. Do you? Let me ask you something. Why did you become a caregiver? I needed a job. Well, there are a lot of jobs out there that don't involve taking care of a kid. I didn't know you were a kid when I went for the interview. What do you think? You think I'm looking for redemption through you? You think I want you to fix me? Is that it? My son died. You can't fix me. I don't want it. Okay. So you keep your problems over there and I'll keep my problems over here. You wipe my ass and I'll say thank you. End of fucking story. And this is a very powerful scene because it brings everything to a head. And the whole line, you know, my son died, you can't fix me, is probably the first time that he's admitted to himself that things are never going to be the way they used to be. I got to figure out something in my life. And that then goes on to the final ending payoff. You'll see within a lot of scenes in this movie that there'll be a beat of dialogue, there'll be some narrative or some action, there'll be another beat of dialogue. And you'll see how the the dialogue in the first beat feeds into the dialogue of the second beat and thong to the third beat. And then how as the scene builds, you now have more information, there's going to be a little more tension because the people know what's going on now. And it sort of escalates. I really enjoyed this movie. And I know there's a lot of you know, a lot of people that do give care to those that um, that they love. And it was just very heartwarming and, and touching to see. And it's one of those things where, you know, these kind of stories need to be told this way so that people can see how not only loving and caring, but how emotional it can be. So thanks. Thanks, Kim, for uh, for recommending it.
I'm so glad you guys liked it too. I mean, I know it's not required for us to analyze, but I think it really helps <laughs> when we like something. And yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad it was touching for you too because I think it's great. Well, thanks guys. I really appreciate everyone taking their crack at it from their own angle because what I'm really here to do this season is not so much tell everybody how to do it, but I'm trying to figure out how, how to do it. How do I tell these kinds of stories that are meaningful and that are deeply internal, that matter, but do them in a way that's entertaining so that we're not, you know, just being preachy, right? We want to come alongside people. So the next part I'm going to jump into is the how. So I feel like we've gotten a lot of really great how stuff from Leslie Ann and Jari. And so let's talk about the life values. Which specific elements or actions, dialogue, transmit these life values? I'm looking for something tangible that I can point to and model after. And I want to look at how are those initial life values set up in the beginning hook, and then how do we convey the change across the spine? Before we can do any of that, first we need to define our life value range by getting as specific as possible. This can take some work, and I highly recommend talking it out with another story nerd and looking at other examples of the genre to get a handle on what's really going on. Along with this story, Leslie and I talked about My Fair Lady, Remains of the Day, Harold and Maud, and here's what we've come up with. So starting with the negation of the negation, we have meaninglessness disguised as meaning. Then we move up to regular old meaninglessness. And then I have cognitive dissonance broke down into three different parts. First, there's a challenge for meaning. Then we go to, you know, kind of the neutral value of they're open to the possibility of meaning. And then there's the active pursuit of meaning. And then there's meaning is found outside of oneself. This could be in another person or in another thing, another activity, a place, something like that. And then the highest value is when meaning is found within oneself, where it is separate and not dependent on the world around us. So once we kind of have our life values in place, we want to take a look at the movement of the story and see which life values are in play and how do we know that. This can be kind of a chicken or the egg kind of analysis. So remember, as I always say, flailing is okay and just keep going. Leslie had some really great questions that she was asking me during our chat that facilitated my thinking. And I'm going to ask her to share those in the show notes because I just thought they were really great. So I'm not going to go through all of this in excruciating detail. The excruciating detail will be in the show notes. And if you're interested in this kind of stuff and want to go deeper, I recommend taking a look at it. We've talked about the beginning hook a little bit with Friedman's framework. You're kind of doing that already when you're trying to figure out what it is. And so I have the beginning hook that we're starting at meaninglessness disguised as meaning. Ben's looking to have meaning as being a caregiver and Trevor finds meaning in his routine, but neither one is actually a real representation of meaning. So then through their interactions over the beginning hook, I feel that they shift into a challenges for meaning where, you know, Ben challenges Trevor and Trevor challenges Ben too, asks him about writing and all those kinds of things. And then by the end of the beginning hook, we've shifted to possible meaning. So we have a chance. We recognize that we're going to try something different than what we've been doing. And then they decide to go see the world's deepest pit. In the middle build, as they travel, Ben is encouraging Trevor to try new things. So this is where they shift from possible meaning to the pursuit of meaning, especially when they meet Dot. And that's a really big moment for Ben and their whole interactions of him kind of coming out of his shell and trying to talk to her and be himself and are really great. They pick up peaches along the way. And Trevor and Dot, they end up going on a date at a diner. And Ben watches him out the window. And Peaches asks Ben, What's it like being a parent? Every corny thing you've ever heard about having a kid is completely and utterly true. It's the only reason we're here. And this is an indication that Ben has not found a new definition of meaning for himself. And in this, it kind of feels like he's finding meaning in another by helping Trevor. And it's interesting that in this moment, Ben is sitting inside looking through a window at Trevor and Dot in the diner, which was exactly what... Ben was giving Trevor a hard time about, about, you know, looking at life out the window like he's watching TV. So we can see this is a great way the filmmakers have indicated to us that this is a substitute for real meaning. We're not there yet. And then Dot gets Trevor to eat French toast instead of waffles. And, and again, he seems to have found meaning within another, meaning being liked by a woman is something Trevor makes all kinds of ridiculous 
jokes about women. He wants to feel like a man, an eligible bachelor, and there's all kinds of crass comments. But so I think in this case, when Dot is really being sincere, she really likes him and she's not making fun of him. It does make him feel significant, right? A huge part of having meaning is feeling significant in the lives of others if you can't yet feel significant for no other reason than you exist. After they meet Trevor's father and all that just is so awkward and terrible, Trevor falls to meaninglessness. The trip, this pursuit, um, it's all become meaningless and everything Ben's tried to do for Trevor is meaningless. And I want us to just take a quick listen of Trevor's little rant about what this means now. Remember when you said to me that you'd bite my ass until there was no more shit left on it? Well, it is shit. It's all shit. I'm shit. You're shit. It's everywhere. It's, it's the Ben Benjamin traveling shit show. So now at this point, their relationship is relegated back to client and caregiver, which leaves Ben at meaninglessness too. So at this point, Peaches asks if they're still going to the pit and Trevor says no. And Ben says, whatever, you know, and then it's Dot, right? Our mentor Dot who speaks up and she calls bullshit on the whole thing and says that they're going because her life will not be complete now until she sees the world's deepest pit. So they decide to continue, but they're really doing it for Dot and Peaches because they're excited about it. You know, it doesn't mean anything for Ben and Trevor anymore. Now in the ending payoff, they reach the pit, and it's actually pretty cool. Like Trevor says, you know, hey, I thought this was going to be lame, but it's pretty cool. So now we're kind of – we pop back up to possible meaning. They go down to the bottom of the pit, and Peaches goes into labor, and Ben has to assist in the delivery, you know, which is really scary for him. And it's all kind of like we're at pursuit of meaning again. This moment when Ben helps Peaches deliver her baby, this is the climax for Ben. When he relives his full memory of losing his son – and it goes full circle and it returns to his son laughing again. This seems to indicate that he's no longer stuck. As the the teacher of the aloha at the very beginning um, in voiceover, she indicated, you know, are you lost, frustrated, or confused, which really felt like Ben's situation. So now we feel like, oh, he's not, he's not that anymore. He's free to live and move again, and he's not stuck. Um, he seems to have found meaning within himself. And then we have the final little part where, you know, Dot decides to continue traveling with her dad. So she has to say goodbye to Trevor. And this is really where his meaning is at risk now because he doesn't have Dot around to show him that he matters and that he's significant. And now that Ben's meaning has been defined by something other than being a parent, Trevor's meaning seems to have been defined by being chosen by a woman. So recognizing this, Ben, now at his best, he sees an opportunity to help Trevor find meaning within himself. And he rigs up the orange stretcher from the paramedics to help Trevor pee standing up all by himself into the world's deepest pit. One tool that I'm finding useful for this exercise is something that Valerie and I have been working on for the Fundamental Fridays post, which is on progressive complications. And this is going scene by scene and listing the tools, obstacles, and irrelevancies that are actually setups to see almost like the literal things that are showing up in the scene, you know, the characters, the dialogue, you know, sometimes it's a prop, like a thing that they have or a setting that they get to. And I'm finding that this is a really great way to get specific and get concrete about what's on the page. And this can help you determine if your story is really conveying what you want. You can identify things that are working, maybe things that are missing, or things that are distracting from what you really want the readers to focus on. Another question that I have that I'm trying to kind of get a handle on so that I can write fulfilling internal genre stories is what's that emotional feeling at the end of the story that the audience resonates with? Is this ending satisfying? What makes it so? And I want to make a note that although all three of the films that I'm picking this season are prescriptive tales, remember satisfying is not synonymous with a positive ending. And then I'm ultimately asking, you know, would I tell this story any differently? Would I make the ending anything different? So for me, this ending works. It's heartwarming satisfaction and delight, as I mentioned. And here, because we have dual protagonists, we get to experience two different climactic scenes, one for each. I'm sure that's not always the case where you could have the climactic scene be for both of them. But in this case, we get two moments. You know, we have Ben delivering the baby and then Trevor's climactic moment of peeing standing up. And then this is followed by a resolution scene of Ben writing again, and he's writing about Trevor, who's up to his usual antics with the caregivers. I enjoy a solid resolution. I like that we really get to soak up the feels. I, you know, no need to duplicate that multiple, multiple resolutions of like the Lord of the Rings Return of the King that just goes on forever. But I do like the fact that we really get to experience those two climactic moments and have a resolution, a resolution scene with Ben back at the keyboard writing again. One example that I wanted to bring up was the Silver Linings Playbook, the film 
Originally, that film ended with them in the street embracing, you know, it's kind of a distant image of them hugging and you you see that they're kind of alone in the middle of the street. But when they tested that with audiences to kind of test it, the ending wasn't very satisfying. And so they added us an additional scene where it shows the characters snuggled together in a chair in the living room and the family's around and everybody's kind of looking and smiling at them. And they're just kind of in their own little world, but it's up close and personal with them. So we can see them and really see their chemistry. And it's so satisfying. I, I love that scene. And I love that movie. And I think having that scene, I was like, oh, thank God they put this in there. Because I hate it when they kind of like just cut the movie with them embracing in the street or or whatever. It just, it feels too far away from me for such an intimate moment. So for me personally, those are the kinds of things I really like in these kinds of stories. Anne had mentioned something in our Coca episode about Larry Brooks's resolution moments. And that's something I want to dig into a little bit more and see what he has to say about that and see if that can be a tool for helping create this meaningful feeling at the end of these internal genre stories. So the next part that I wanted to look at, specifically external genres. So what external genres are used? Does the story have one strong external genre that acts like a co-pilot to that internal genre story? Or are there multiple interwoven external genres that act like subplots or they kind of create the setting in which the internal change takes place? Or is it something else altogether? Are there any recurring patterns or strong pairings that we can identify? In this, I don't have takeaways as much as I'm kind of building my investigation. So I'm just kind of logging this information, and I'm hoping that by the end of season four, we can draw some conclusions and some connections on how this stuff fits together. For this story, there's kind of the main story between Ben and Trevor, and then we have these subplots with Dot and with Peaches and Ben's relationship with his wife. So between Ben and Trevor, we have kind of this buddy love story. Um, it's kind of like a courtship. You know, they get from they don't really know each other to they they kind of commit to being friends. And they do kind of have this love-hate thing going on. So I'm calling it a buddy love courtship. Can I just jump in here with a comment, though? Absolutely. I think the buddy comedy like this is – it. It isn't really a love story by any romantic definition, and I think we need a category for friendship stories because personally I resist the notion that any two characters who meet and get to know and respect each other must form a kind of love story with parts missing, treating it like the love story, the romantic love story is the pinnacle and everything between two people less than that is less than. What, what would you consider Thelma and Louise then? It's not a buddy comedy, but I mean, they have a great friendship I mean, they go to the end, right? So what would you consider that? Well, they were friends the whole time, right? I guess I'm thinking of like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles comes to mind where the John Candy and Steve Martin characters, like Steve Martin doesn't like <laughs> the John Candy character at all. And they're like, totally don't get along. It's a very odd couple. But then by the end, they reach a higher understanding of each other and themselves. And so they they get something out of it, but it is different than I think if they were friends at the very beginning. I don't know. And there's there's that sparring and, and positioning and negotiating and stuff similar to a love story. And I don't want to make the case that this is completely different from a love story. I just want to make the case that I think we should not call it a love story manque, you know? Yeah. And and because it's helpful, right? If we need, we need, to, we tell these stories, they're important. And so then the other part that we kind of have going on in the external is this kind of action adventure thing. It's the road trip. It's the quest. There is this aspect of life and death. There's stakes that if we forget Trevor's pills, if we forget his, you know, his breathing apparatus, his CPAP, you know, all these different things that things could happen if we're far away from hospital. So we have like this risk, but nothing ever really actually happens in the story related to that. The the biggest risk is when Peaches has her baby and like, oh my gosh, they're at the bottom of this pit and they're far away from everything. So we don't really get to life and death, but we talk about it and it's kind of on the table, even though it's just more of an aside. So I'm still calling it an action adventure story. I, I think that's fair. We we have children's action adventure stories where life and death, I mean, I like the idea that risk of life and death, maybe out there a ways, is still a valid life value range, even for stories that aren't, that really don't have life and death stakes. And we can still call them adventure stories. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds like what we have here. And it, it feels, it makes sense because, you know, if we're going to have internal genres, something has to happen, right? We need the challenge or the trial or the opportunity. So that's why we we're going to need an external genre to be able to do that. And so even if we, it doesn't have to look exactly like it would look if it was global. So I like the permission that's there for that. 
Then we have the subplots. So I have a love courtship between Trevor and Dot, which, you know, it's really cute the way they are together. And, you know, they do go on a date. She kisses him goodbye, that kind of thing. But then, you know, they go their separate ways and they're going to text and and everything. And so it's not exactly a love courtship, but it is. I mean, I guess that's kind of what it is. I'm marking kind of an action adventure for Peaches and baby Elton, which is, uh, you know, Peaches is pregnant. She starts out stranded on the side of the road and then she ends up giving birth at the bottom of the pit. And then we kind of have a love marriage story between Ben and his wife, Janet. And again, you know, we just get bits of this. These are just subplots. They don't have to have all of the obligatory scenes and conventions. They're there to really help facilitate the overall change, as well as, you know, we bring in these other characters that are, have their own, they have their own stuff going on. If we were to write the story from their point of view, it would be a very different story. So those are just some observations. And like I said, I'm kind of just marking them now. And we'll we'll take a look kind of at the end of, of season four and see what conclusions we can come to. So then my final question here is why? Why is this story being told? And why does it matter? Why does this kind of story exist? What is it about this specific internal subgenre that we need? Why do we humanity need it? And it's unlikely that I'll be able to answer this one completely today, but I'm hoping to start down the right path here. And I'm really looking at, you know, the meta-meta-bena story, the theme-controlling idea that transcends the genre to talk about what it means to be human, which for me is what stories are all about. So let's talk about really quick what the controlling idea or theme is for this story and, and genre. So in this case, it's worldview education. We're talking about finding meaning. So I have meaning is found when we look for it within ourselves rather than in people and things outside ourselves and when we help others do the same. So that's kind of the takeaway that I get from this story. And what is it about that controlling idea or theme that is important for humanity? And This is kind of where I landed. Life can really be a shit show, right? Shit happens and we can lose our previously working definitions of meaning. Think of all of the big life-changing events and the inevitable cognitive dissonance that comes with that. Having to move, divorce, death of a parent, death of a child, death of a spouse. Sometimes even small things like when your best friend gets married or has a child before you do. Career change, empty nesters. All of these are moments that force us to reconsider our definitions of meaning and our own role of significance in the world. Meaning seems to be intricately connected with our identity. So we need stories that serve as models for how other people have handled it and if that worked out or not. Does that resonate with us or not? These are fundamentally prescriptive tales, so it's important that what a story prescribes is authentic because if it's not, the audience will know it and then it won't have meaning, which would be sad and terribly ironic. Yeah, it would be a loss to society if we didn't have these stories. I wanted to comment particularly on the similarity between this film and Manchester by the Sea, which we analyzed in the beginning of season three. Both stories, interestingly, feature a father who has lost his family through an accident or mistake that he made. I listened to a podcast the other day called On Being with Krista Tippett. It's a really good podcast. And she had a guest called Pauline Boss who studies incomplete loss or incomplete grieving and the whole question of loss and death and so forth. And she says, there is no such thing as closure. She says, I'd like to get rid of that word from the language except in real estate transactions. The podcast episode is called The Myth of Closure. I'll link to it in the show notes. And one of her key points is that the strangely American, or maybe it's Western, cultural insistence on getting over it is wrong. You don't get over something like what Ben in this story has suffered. You don't go through five stages and come out the other side back to normal after enduring something like what Lee in Manchester by the Sea has endured. In fact, Pauline Boss, the guest on the podcast, makes a point of saying that the Kubler-Ross change curve, which we talk a lot about in this story grid world, really only ever was meant to apply to people facing their own terminal diagnosis. And that is the only situation in which it is really valid. The rest of us, until then, just have to live with loss. Grief may fade, but it never ends. We are changed by it. So although um, Fundamentals of Caring is a much lighter and happier story than Manchester by the Sea, it rests on a similar foundation. And I believe the point of both stories at some level is that loss, tragedy, and sorrow visit us all, and we need stories about how to go on living. Yeah, that's perfect way to say it, Anne. And one of the other things that is important when you tell these sort of stories is what Elsa said to Trevor 
there are people that have it worse than you do. And you need to remember that. And we need these stories in order to make it so that we know that we're not in our own little private pity party and we need to live life because love and loss are together. The thing that you do do is you learn to live life the way whoever left you wanted you to. And it takes stories like this and stories like Manchester by the Sea to realize that the self-destructive nature of grief and loss, especially in the U.S. and Western culture, will eat you alive if you don't really understand that this is a process that never ends. And these these stories make it more real, but more importantly, like shake you out of the private pity party that we all get into when we don't know that others are suffering as much as we are, or even more. And um, I'm again, I'm glad, I'm I'm glad we looked at it. So am I. Thanks, Dari. That's really awesome. And that is the importance of storytelling, which is why it is so important for us to take the time to study the craft so that we can best tell these stories that need to be told. Because we live vicariously through story, just as Jari said, and it gives us tools for living. (laughs) Okay, we'll move on now to our listener question. We end every episode with a question from one of you. And this week, we have one from Julie Warren. Let's have a listen to what Julie has asked. Hi, amazing roundtable editors. My name is Julie Warren, and I have so appreciated the spreadsheets you've put together for the different conventions because I really wanted to get the worldview maturation. And I can't find the notes where you guys used to list out the global story, beginning hook, middle build, ending payoff, and all the conventions. So I was wondering if there's a way I might be able to get access to those tied to each movie that you profile on the podcast again. Thank you so much. Thanks for the kind words and thanks for the question. It gives us an opportunity to sum up how we've been structuring this podcast and our related show notes. Back in season one, we filled out a global fool's cap worksheet for each of the 13 movies we analyzed. And each fool's cap is a tab on a spreadsheet that we'll link to in the show notes. They're all labeled by genre and film title, so you should be able to find what you're after there. With season two, we began including the fool's cap inside the show notes rather than maintaining a separate spreadsheet. So if you go to storygrid.com and click on resources, you'll find a heading for Editor's Roundtable Podcast, and there every one of our episodes is listed. If you don't see the global genre listed in the blurb, you'll usually find it called out pretty early in the show notes themselves. By the time we got to season three, we decided to stop providing the full fool's cap for every movie. After 25 rounds or so, we felt justified in hoping that our listeners were beginning to get the hang of it. However, you'll find that most of the fool's cap questions are answered in the body of the show notes. Finally, editor Rochelle Ramirez, one of our colleagues in the StoryGrid editing world, has written detailed Fundamental Fridays blog posts on each of the content genres. Each post includes every subgenre, every obligatory scene and convention, and lists additional masterworks you can study. The most heartfelt part of the answer is that there is no substitute for analyzing a few stories for yourself, especially if you can join with a group of fellow story nerds like we've done here. It's a difficult brain change to make, but it's amazing when you feel it happen. When it does, the giant orb of story will open up and really begin to reveal its secrets to you. So I hope these tips and the links that we'll include in the show notes will help you make some steps in that direction. Thank you for a great question. If you have a question about writing a global internal genre story or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT. Or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on the Editor Roundtable podcast, and leaving us a voice message. We love your voice messages. Keep sending them. That wraps it up for this week, everyone. Fantastic discussion. Thank you so much, Anne, Jari, Kim, and Leslie, for your excellent editorial insights, as always, into the fundamentals of caring. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to write a better global internal genre story. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. And if you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor 
or would like to find out more about what we do, visit storygrid.com editing. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by telling other writers about us, by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Join us next time when Anne continues her deep dive into non-linear storytelling with a look at the choose-your-own-adventure Bandersnatch, an episode from Black Mirror. I'm looking forward to that one. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank you.